Turn with me online or on paper to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Uh, It's also, well, it's not in the printed order of worship uh, this morning, is it? Uh, I'm used to to telling you that it's in the printed order of worship. Uh, Today we're going to begin a three-week series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just going to focus on chapter 22. The Gospels are theologically driven biographies about Jesus. Notice I didn't say ideologically driven. Sometimes when scholars want to push back on the historiographic writing of the Gospels, they talk about the Gospels as ideological documents. Documents that we somehow can't trust because they have an agenda. But then again, every document has an agenda, doesn't it? The Gospels are upfront about their agenda. The Gospels are theologically driven biographies. They are words about God, theology, God in the person of Jesus Christ, a man's biography. Matthew 22 takes place during the last week of Jesus' life, and it shows us his final teaching through a parable, his final question answering and his authoritative reading and teaching of God's Word. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks. And so today, it'll be this parable found in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. This is God's Word, truthful in all it affirms. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both the bad and the good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. Why do we like fairy tales? Because they make invisible things visible. And this is what I mean. In life... We can't always see the villains. We can't see the ogres and the monsters. And 
Likewise, we can't always see the heroes. Uh, We can't see their courage and their bravery. And when you can't see what's on the inside, humans uh, can tend to look the same. Right? We all, sort of look, we all sort of look the same when we're walking down the street. We can't see what's on the inside. Uh, but the song from Mary Poppins Returns says it well. Uh, the cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Fairy tales help us in that. They take those bad things on the inside and put them on the outside. And so when you hear a good fairy tale, it makes plain enough for, for even children to see who are the villains, who are the ogres, who are the heroes, who are the brave princes. It's not just children who need fairy tales. All of us need them. We need things to be made plain that are often invisible to us. And often we we miss those heroes and villains among us because we haven't sharpened our ability to discern them. We need to see the ogres and the princes in stories so we can get better at discerning the ogres and the princes all around us. And maybe even the ogres and the princes within us. A good story leaves you asking questions about your own traits on the inside, the ones that people can't see plainly, but we all know are there. Are you an ogre or a prince? A villain, a princess, a king? Too often we brush over uh, well-known stories that could sharpen us if we took a minute to pay attention to them. And that's why we're going to take uh, three weeks uh, on three interactions that Jesus had during the last week of his life in Matthew 22. Jesus is going to sharpen us in this chapter. And if you've never really encountered Jesus, uh, this is a great place to dive in. And if you've been wondering how to introduce a friend to Jesus, uh, this is a great place to take them because I would say in some ways this is classic Jesus in Matthew 22. He's going to tell a parable. He's going to have some interactions with some religious leaders. He's going to, he's going to read the Old Testament for us. Uh, this is going to be a, a pretty amazing place. And it says here in verse 1 that Jesus is talking to the crowd in parables, a kind of theologically driven fairy tale. Jesus is going to overstate some things to make it plain, to make a larger point that because God has set the feast, we must come and eat. This parable is going to sharpen us. And to understand what it means for us that we must come and eat, we need to look here in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, at the story, the story around the story, and how that interacts with your own story. So, now that we have the explanation of verse 1, let's begin with the parable, the story itself, in verse 2. Jesus tells us right away what he's going to sharpen. He's going to sharpen our view of the kingdom of heaven. It can be compared to a king of men who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, ancient weddings were more fun than modern weddings, Uh, because instead of merely one day of festivities, they were usually several days long, up to maybe seven days. A more wooden translation of verse 2 would be, a king gave feasts, plural, for his son, referring to the several days that that a wedding feast would go on in those times. And in the time before alarm clocks and Google calendars, servants went out to call those who are invited to the feasts. And Jesus throws the first problem into the story here. Those who were invited would not come. 
The A-list invitations were ignored there in verse 3. So in verse 4, other servants are sent with a stronger message. They were sent with something that compels most all of us, the dinner menu, right? Oxen and the fattened calves have been butchered and grilled to a perfect medium rare, or maybe well done if you prefer. Uh, Everything is ready. It's time. It's time for you to come. Even if you're fashionably late, come. And in verse 5 comes the first insult. If those invited ignored the first invitation on the second round, they filled their calendar with something else. One went to his farm. Another went to his business. Right? So both city folks and country folks were invited And city folks and country folks ignored the invitation. You can't read this story and tell yourself, well, those people who were busy, those city folk are always so busy. And you can't say, ah, well, those country folk are ignoring it. They're always working. Both kinds of people, all kinds of people, find excuses to ignore the invitation. And this little detail lets us know that we can't read this story and say, well, this parable isn't about me. I can just keep it at arm's length. It's it's about another kind of person. If the world is only divided into two kinds of people, this story lets us know that both kinds of people ignore the king's invitation. But verse 6 goes on, and it, it divides the world into a third. We get a third kind of person. The others. And the others really are the most horrible. They, in this story, are the ogres. What do they do? They seize the servants and treat them shamefully and kill them. I mean, we have a saying, don't we? Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. But that's exactly what happens here. The messengers of the king arrive and implore those invited to come to the feast. But the ogres grab hold of them, treat them with scorn and contempt, as if these are worthless people with complete disrespect, and then they kill them. Now, this is one way that we know we're dealing with a story in this parable, because who would do that? Who would actually do that? I mean, murder is bad enough, but murdering an emissary of the government is even worse, right? Don't shoot the postman. Uh, it's, a greater, it's a greater penalty in our world to, uh, to murder a police officer or a soldier. Those are the worst kinds of stories that we get in the news. And why? Because you're not just murdering an individual, you're striking out at the government, the very fabric binding our society together. But again, I ask you, who really would do that? You might ignore the servant. You might even tell a servant to leave you alone. But would you really kill a servant who came to invite you to the feast? You'd have to be some kind of ogre to do that. But then in verse 7, we get an equally strong response. The king, who is justly angry, sends his soldiers to execute the murderers. Not only that, after he executes them, he burns down their city. The king terminates the ogres with extreme prejudice. And then in verse 8, he labels all those who were invited originally as not worthy. The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. This is another story element when we look at it. 
Did the army really go out and uh, destroy the people and burn a city down while uh, the table was set with the food perfectly cooked on it, all getting cold? And did they do that in enough time that uh, as soon as that was done happening, uh, the servants could get more people and bring them back? We're dealing with a story, fantastic elements, and yet true elements. In verse 9, the servants are told, go to the crossroads where there's a lot of traffic, and as many as you find there, call them to the feast. And in verse 10, that's exactly what they do. They gather as many as they can find on the road. It says they gathered both the bad and the good. What does that mean exactly? It's explained in the next part of the story. But at the end of verse 10, the wedding feast is filled with guests, which is the whole point to begin with. Uh, I was once invited to stand up for a guy uh, that I didn't know very well in his wedding. Uh, It was in college uh, when I was a music major. Uh, This guy was a drummer. Uh, I'm a saxophonist, and and the guy was was really honest with me. He said, look, uh, I was going to have five guys stand up with me, and one of them can't make it. Uh, Would you be willing to stand up with me uh, in the wedding? Would you be one of my groomsmen? Uh, I was was a little flattered. He was a little desperate. It was was a match made in heaven, right? I agreed to do it. But even though his invitation to me to stand up with him in his wedding was kind of last minute, I still had to shell out 300 bucks to rent the tuxedo, right? Uh, He may have been desperate, but he wasn't so desperate that I was going to stand up there uh, at a wedding dressed like I am today in jeans and a a flannel shirt. Uh, He he was desperate, but he wasn't that desperate. Uh, And that's how the story ends in verse 11. The king comes to his feast. And he finds a man basically in jeans, no tuxedo. That's what verse 12 means. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man himself is speechless. Now look, I know that there are some weddings that happen in jeans, that there are dressed down weddings. But verse 12 is a man uh, in jeans at a tuxedo wedding. He knows he's in the wrong, the way, you know, you can't mix up jeans from a tux, you know. You know what you're supposed to wear. Uh, even, even most men who tend to be, uh, you know, clueless when it comes to fashion, they, they, they usually know what they're supposed to wear at a, at a particular formal occasion like a wedding. But verse 13 is the surprise ending. The man who uh, is speechless and not in a wedding garment is bound hand and foot and by the servants and then thrown out into utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes! To understand this bizarre ending, we now need to look at the story that was going on around the story. Now I'll tell you, the first wedding that I performed uh, was the day after I graduated from seminary. I did the premarital counseling for a couple as I was finishing up classes, and I had this, I had this perfect little wedding homily all ready for them. I was really excited. Uh, and my brother uh, came from St. Louis uh, for my graduation at seminary, and he also volunteered to watch our young children at the time so my wife and I could go to the wedding reception unencumbered and enjoy the night. Uh, you know, like I graduated one day, I did this wedding the next day. It was gonna, it, I was so excited for this weekend. The wedding happens. We had a great time. A few weeks later, uh, the bride and groom returned from the honeymoon. I talked to them on the phone. I said, hey, how was it? And uh, they said, we had a great time. And they said, and we've started looking over the wedding pictures. 
And I said, oh, really, you know, it was such a beautiful day and you guys are so beautiful and all these things. Uh, And they said, Tag, we've been asking everyone uh, who was at the wedding about one guy who showed up in the pictures. Neither of us can recognize him from our families. Uh, when the bride and groom left the church, everyone was out on the steps of it. And the church was, was a big old Gothic building. It was very beautiful. And I don't remember if we threw rice or did bubbles or something, but we were all out on the steps when they left. Um, and then the photographer got a picture of them leaving in a limousine. And then the photographer got a picture of all of us standing out on the steps. But over on the left side of the picture, they said, there's a guy who's there uh, he's a little overweight, and, he's, and, and he was more than a little overweight. He was a lot overweight, and in jeans um, and a Hawaiian shirt, and none of it was, was flattering on him. And as they began describing it to me, I realized one thing. It was my brother. <laughs> my brother had come to the wedding. He didn't come to the wedding itself. He didn't know the couple. He was coming to pick up the kids. Uh, and so he ended up in that picture. Um, and so I have to tell you what happened after I, after I said, oh, I said, I said, it's my brother. You know what happened? They called the police. Both my brother and I were arrested uh, and put in jail for crashing their wedding. No, that's not what happened at all. Of course that didn't happen, right? Like, we, we laughed it off. I mean, I was a little embarrassed, they were a little embarrassed, and, and we, got a, we got a big chuckle out of it, right? There's another way that we know we're dealing with a, with, with a story that's telling us something else. Who, when you find someone at, the, at a wedding who's in the wrong clothes, you don't bind them hand and foot and throw them into out of, outer darkness. Like, like what, what's going on here? Jesus is telling us something else here. Where's Jesus telling this story? He was in Jerusalem. He was speaking to the people of God with the leaders of God's people on the edge of the crowd listening in. They were waiting for their moment to pounce on Jesus. And he was cutting in on their leadership in their view. He was cutting in on their control. In the previous chapter 21, Jesus had already said to the Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of them. He just finished telling the parable of the wicked tenants who had killed the owner of the vineyard in order to take the vineyard for themselves. And that parable of the wicked tenants and this parable are similar. Both have ogres who have come to kill the servants of the king. And in both cases, the ogres are killed because of their revolt against what they're supposed to be doing. But the story of the vineyard had more immediate application on earth among God's people, his vineyard. This story, this parable that we're looking at, has more direct application talking about the feast at the end of the age when heaven comes to earth. The theme of feasting can be traced throughout Scripture, right? God comes to eat with his appointed leaders of the people in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9 speak of the hungry wanderers whose food is provided by the Lord. Earlier, we read Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, talking about the feast on the Lord's mountain at the end of time. And that picture is picked up by John, writing at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. There is a feast at the end of time. It's the feast of the kingdom of heaven. 
It's also called in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In this moment, when Jesus is telling the story, he is the servant calling those who are invited to the feast at the end of time. The problem is that in the story around the story, all kinds of people are listening to Jesus. There are country folks who will walk away and return to their homes, their farms. There are city folks who will return to their business. And then there are these religious leaders who feel that they're losing control because of Jesus and they're out to get him. But here he is, inviting them to the feast but they're refusing to come in and they're already plotting how to have him arrested and killed. They just haven't had the right opportunity yet. In the Old Testament, the servants of God were his prophets. And that was a well-known fact among these people that Jesus is talking to. And they also know how many of the prophets of Israel were killed and their message was ignored. And later, Jesus is going to indict these Pharisees by telling them, you're the kind of people who think you would not have ignored the prophets. You think, oh, we'd have listened to them. You'd have been that good, but you're just fooling yourselves. In as nice a way as possible, Jesus is warning these religious ultra-conservatives that they are in danger of being destroyed, not by a Roman emperor ruling their nation, but they're in danger of being destroyed by God in hell, the outer darkness of verse 13, the place where there really is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I need to point out here that Jesus is talking about hell. This is not the only place that Jesus talks about it either. Some people will say that they like Jesus, but they don't like Christians because Christians tend to talk in terms of fire and brimstone and a lot of hell talk. Look, I'm not trying to be mean, but if you don't believe in hell, just know that Jesus does. And he says uh, to both the bad and the good, you can only avoid hell by coming to the feast and wearing the appropriate clothes. Now, where does that story around the story leave us? We have to find the answer to that by saying, well, where does the story and the story around the story intersect with your own story? Now, here's the mistake that some people make when they read this. Uh, It's an honest, honest mistake, but it's a mistake nonetheless. You could look at this, and if you're not careful, you might think that the story and the story around the story means that uh, religious people are out because they're hypocrites, and irreligious people are in, because they're not hypocrites. But that's not the story. Remember, the invited people were not worthy. They rebelled against the king and refused the feast by their actions, especially killing the servants. But the good and the bad who eventually filled up the feast also had a hypocrite among them, someone who thought the king must be desperate for guests. Just like my friend Dave, who desperately wanted me in his wedding. He was desperate, but not that desperate, right? I I had to get a tux. The man in the story knew he needed wedding clothes. If you feel like God should be lucky that you pay any attention to him at all, you're the same kind of hypocrite as the Pharisees or as the man at the wedding. God is not desperate for you to try and make him feel better by coming to his feast. King Herod, when he died, was desperate 
to have people mourn over him. He was a wicked ruler, though, and he knew that people were probably going to rejoice at his death. So do you know what he did? It's recorded by the historian Josephus. Herod had hundreds of people executed on the day of his death so that there would indeed be people mourning when he died. He was desperate for mourners. But the king in this parable is good and gracious. He's calling people and he calls and says, bring people to my son's feast. And that last verse reminds us, many are called, but few are chosen. And over and over again, when I read this parable, it leaves me with just two questions. As many times as I read it, these two questions keep coming back to me. Number one, will I be chosen? And number two, where would I get clothes if I am chosen? So first, will I be chosen? Now look, I don't really need to get into a philosophical argument about free will and predestination. If you, if, if you want that, um, uh, you can watch almost any, mo- uh, any movie by director uh, Chris Nolan and get into that, or your favorite time travel movie. Usually free will and predestination comes up in one of those. But look at how Jesus, in this story, talks about the call. It's a free offer. It comes from a sovereign king. It comes graciously, not because of any merit in the people who are invited. But the feast is going to happen. Just like Herod was going to have mourners, so God at the end of time is going to have a feast and it's going to be filled with people. This feast cannot be thwarted. But the feast is also refused and when it is refused, the blame for the refusal is not on the king. It's on the ones who refuse and the ones who rebel against the king and rebel against his goodness. So if the call to the feast comes to you, like the people of the story or the people listening to Jesus, what will you do? Will you come to the feast? I read this story and I find myself uh, in my heart jumping up and down and saying, ah, pick me, pick me, call me, choose me. And if that's your heart's response to this story, you can safely assume that Jesus' free offer is free to you as well. And then the second question gets me. Where would I get the clothes to go to this wedding? What what are those clothes for the wedding? They are the righteous deeds of those who belong to God. The righteous deeds are the clothes that maybe on a good day I have some, but on most days I find myself sorely lacking. Uh, You know, I, I I may be like my brother. I may have the kind of righteous deeds that are like a Hawaiian shirt and jeans, but I don't have the kind of righteous deeds that are wedding clothes for a feast with God at the end of time. Do you? Jesus is going to tell us where to get those clothes. But first, I I just want to bring this home by by addressing three groups of people. You may be here today, you may be watching this online, and, and you may fall into one of these categories. You may have grown up in church, or you may have interacted in the church, but you might be too busy to hear the call to the feast. You might be actively rejecting the king. You might be saying, I've heard this all before, and I don't want any part of it. 
or you might be actively rejecting as a second group of people. You might actually be in church or online watching this today uh, because we were just the, the last best offer for your Sunday afternoon. And sometimes I jokingly say that Charlottesville is the city of the last best offer, uh, where everyone, when you make plans, they'll say, oh yeah, I, th- I think I'll be there, but they're, they're, you can kind of hear it in our voices sometimes. We put it in pencil uh, because I'm, I'm holding out, I might get a better offer for lunch or dinner, but but. But if you end up being the last best offer, sometimes we treat uh, the gathering of God's people uh, online or in person like that. If we get a better offer, maybe we're out. That's also rejecting and rebelling against the king. It's not wearing the clothes. But third, there might be a third group. And that's this. Maybe you never thought of being with Jesus as being at a feast. You never considered that when I'm with Jesus, when I'm singing to Jesus, when I'm praying to Jesus, that his presence with me could invigorate my heart and mind to the place where even if I were alone with him, it would feel like being at a feast. And it's just one small feast pointing toward a big feast that we'll all sit at a table, that we'll all have a place at the table at, where the food will be cooked, well-aged wine, well-cooked meat, a feast at the end of time. And if that's where you're at, you're saying, I never thought of it like that. Then the invitation is, come and consider then today you're a part of the story and the story around the story and this is interacting with your story because the call is coming from me to you. Come and feast with Jesus. Because sometimes uh, people reject the church thinking they're rejecting Jesus when really they're rejecting the Pharisees. They're rejecting the kind of uh, people who think that religion, uh, Christianity, is about making uh, bad people good and good people a little nicer. That's sort of the religion of the Pharisees, and a lot of people don't need anything to do with that, or to a lot of people that sounds like the last best offer. But the truth is, Christianity is about making dead people alive. It's about taking people who are unclothed and making them clothed. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we don't depend on the righteousness that we have, the clothes that we sew for ourselves, the good deeds that really aren't that good when we try and weigh them out over the course of a whole life and and put them up against the bad things that we do. But there is one whose deeds were that good. They're the deeds of Christ. And the work of Christ on your behalf is that he went to the cross and was crucified and on the cross took the shame of all our sins on himself, that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Crucifixion was a shameful thing to undergo. It was reserved for enemies of the state. And almost everyone who was crucified was crucified buck naked. Shamefully sprawled out until they were asphyxiated by the weight of their own body impaled on a tree. Jesus hung naked that you might be clothed. In his resurrection from the dead, the Bible says that we are justified by his blood. And anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ puts on the Lord Jesus Christ as your wedding garment. Clothed in Christ, you have clothes to come to the feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, at the end of time. Those who deserve hell 
are made fit by Jesus to feast in the kingdom of God when heaven and earth meet. So come to the feast. We're going to take a moment now to have a small feast pointing forward to that big feast. It's for those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that you receive by faith. Come to the feast clothed in the righteousness of the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you help us to have ears to hear the story, eyes to see the story around the story, and hearts that will believe that your story intersects with our own, that we might be clothed in you by your righteousness, raised in your resurrection, and be justified by your grace, that we might have a place at the table at the feast at the end of time. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.